Well, today I want to tell you all a story. And I'll just start right in with the story. It's about a guy named Dismas. If you don't know who Dismas is, it's good, because I get to tell you the story. Dismas was a, a man who lived a long time ago, a couple thousand years ago, and he was brought up in a, in a very typical, traditional Jewish home. His parents knew scripture. They taught their children scripture. They attended synagogue each week. They uh, kept the Sabbath. And Dismas was brought up being told that God always has his eye upon you. He's given us his law. And in keeping his law, we're in right relationship with him. And in breaking his law, we're not. So do your best to be good so you can have God's favor. Well, Dismas delighted as a, a young boy in doing whatever pleased his parents. So he was a good law keeper for the most part. He made mistakes here and there, but he was pretty good. As he got a little older, he started to ask questions. He asked his, his dad, is God really real? How do we know? His dad said, we just know. We're Jewish. He said to his mom, Mom, why do we have to keep all these regulations on the Sabbath? Why can't we run around and play? And why can't we do other things? He says, it's just what we do. We're Jewish. He got a little older and he asked, why do these rabbis make all these rules and why do we have to keep their rules? Who said the rabbis are in charge and get to tell us what the Bible means? Why don't we all get to read the Bible together and see what God has to say? And we get stern looks from the rabbis at synagogue who said, it's just what we do. Well, Dismas, he didn't just fall in line. He had questions that weren't answered, and the questions turned to skepticism and then cynicism, and Dismas grew into a boy who was then a teenager who was eventually a bad man. And I don't mean bad by God's standard, I mean bad by human standards, because Dismas had a, had a talent, and his talent was thievery. And he started as a young boy one day in the temple. He saw an item that he wanted, so he took it, and no one noticed. And he thought that was pretty cool. So he would steal other things and bigger things and more and more things. And by the time Dismas was a man, he was stealing everything you could imagine. He was filthy rich. He hated people. He didn't care about people. But he had everything he wanted from the world's perspective. Well, one day Dismas was walking through the market and he saw a, a rich trader shoving money into his money belt. And he determined to follow this guy. He was going to take this money, and the rich trader went into an alleyway, and Dismas stepped in behind him, and he beat the man into a bloody pulp and took his belt, and he put it around, and he turned to run, and a hand grabbed Dismas. And he pulled, but he couldn't get free, and he turned his head, and there was a large Roman guard with a massive Roman hand clamped onto Dismas. And he took Dismas to the authorities, and Dismas stood trial, and the authorities found him guilty of attempted murder and thievery, and they sentenced him to death. And Dismas sat in prison, and he knew how he would die. He would die on a cross, as everyone would die in this setting. And on the day of his crucifixion, the day of his execution, he traveled down the road, as all people did, carrying the part of his cross up to a place called the place of the skull. And he went with two other guys this day to die. And there were huge crowds who were yelling and crying and weeping. He didn't know what was going on. And one of the guys going with him was a little bit different, to say the least. 
But Dismas and the third guy were reviling this man who went with them. Why was he getting all this attention? How dare he ruin this day? Dismas was an angry man. Now, everything up to that point, with the exception of the last little bit, is completely made up. The name Dismas is actually a name attributed to a person we're going to look at today by early Christian literature. But we're going to be in Luke 23. And this man I'm talking about calling Dismas is actually someone you know better probably as the thief or the criminal on the cross. If you remember, when our Lord was crucified, there were two people crucified with him. We know nothing about these people with the exception of these couple verses here. And also, if you flip into, you, don't, you can flip there, you don't have to. But in Matthew and Mark, we get a glimpse of one other important thing. That both of these criminals were reviling the Lord when they hung on a cross. Now, I've entitled this sermon, Our Story. Because we all died on a cross next to Jesus? No. Because the reality is the conversion of this thief or criminal on a cross, if you're a child of God, is the same as your story. And when you understand what happened, you see the difference between a genuine Christian and one who is not. And my hope as we look at this is we might more clearly see where we are and how we got there so we could walk more fully in the will of God. You see, often if you forget how you got to where you are, you ruin it. And as Christians, if we forget where, how we got to where we are, we kneecap our ability to walk in and with the Lord. So Luke 23, we don't know the man's name, this criminal's name. We don't know anything about his history. All of that was speculation. It's informed speculation based off of the time and the place and the authorities that be. But it's all speculation. But what I'll share with you now isn't speculation. It's truth based on the historical record that God chose to reveal to us in his word. So Luke 23, if you go over to verse 32, it says two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified. I'm sorry, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. How does this happen? You have a, a God-hater who all of a sudden loves God. You have a spiritually dead person who has eternal life. 
you see light come out of darkness? How, how does this happen? How did this criminal, in such short order, go from reviling the Lord to loving the Lord? Now, if you're paying attention, you're going to say in that text, Pastor, it doesn't say that both criminals reviled the Lord. It just says one of them did. Well, I'd refer you to Matthew 27:44 and Mark 15, 32. In those texts, it tells us that both criminals were involved. Let's look at one of them so you don't think I'm making it up. Matthew 27, in verse 44, it reads very simply, Matthew and Mark give a, a side glimpse of these events. But it says, And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Both criminals were reviling him. The Mark 15.32 passage says the same thing. How do you go from reviling the Lord to asking the Lord for forgiveness like that? Now, there was an evangelistic proclamation from the foot of the cross, right? There, there was an evangelist who showed up, and he called up to the thieves, Turn! Repent of your sins and be saved, right? Isn't that what's going on at the foot of the cross? There's a prayer meeting gathered in the local churches for the, for the thief on the cross, praying for his salvation, right? Nobody was holding that sign. No, there was a sign. We'll get to a sign. There was a sign in a minute. But I want you to see something, because this is the same story for all of us. Do you know how people come to saving faith? The criminal jumped in a moon bounce right before he got on the cross. No. Watch what happens. Four things. Four things that are the mark of every genuine Christian. A fear of God. A recognition of sin. A recognition of the righteousness of Christ. And a request or asking for forgiveness. They're all right there. Watch this. This man's transformation seems radical. For most of us, we look and we think there was a process. See, I used to be angry towards God. I used to have lots of questions about God that were never answered. I was the kid like Dismas. Why do we have to go to temple? Because it's what we do. Okay, well, when you're five, six, seven years old, you know, you kind of got to go. And I'd sit in temple in my little suit and, you know, bouncing around. And there'd be a large hand that would reach around me and push me down from bouncing. I still have trouble not bouncing, sorry. Then I got a little older. Well, why do we believe this stuff in our friend? My friends are all Catholic. Why do they believe something different? Because we're Jewish. Well, see, that didn't sit well. So I thought, I'll go through the motions. It's bar mitzvah to 13. I didn't know what was going on, but I could recite the whole stuff I had to out of Hebrew. Then I became a cynical teenager. How do you know these miracles are true? Well, we just have to assume they're true push far enough, you know that people don't actually believe what they say they believe, and you think, this is just a joke. Then you grow into an a adult who doesn't believe, and begin the process the other way it looks like when you come to faith. That's not how this man happened, but that's really not my story, as you'll see in a minute. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? Paul was a spiritual seeker. I would like to know who God is and how I could find out. Quick, let us gather our items and go to Damascus and ask people why they believe in Jesus. Is that what happened? No, he was going to Damascus to destroy the church and the Lord met him on the road and Paul became a follower of Christ. Boom, right? What happened? Watch what happened. You see here in verse 40, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Watch this. 
in the world around this criminal on the cross, the Romans had no idea who Jesus was. The Jews had no idea who Jesus was. The disciples had an idea who he was, but they were freaking out. And this man, this criminal on a cross, has clarity somehow. How? Do you not fear God? Well, here's the thing. For a person to truly be a Christian, they need to start with this simple understanding. God is a threat. Do you know that? God is a massive threat. A lot of people will tell me about the idols they've created. Well, I think God is a loving God, and hmm, God's a threat. God is not comfortable. God doesn't go in a box, and you don't get to tell God what to do. God made it all. He owns it all, and he sets the rules for it all. And God's requirement is what? Try your best, and if you do good enough, I'll let you in. You must be perfect as I am perfect. Well, 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 I don't like that rule, God. He says, I don't care. I'm God, you're not. James tells us in James 2.10, if you break one little iota of the law, you're guilty of it all. You see, when you recognize God for who he is and his requirement upon us, God isn't cozy. It becomes frighteningly scary. This criminal was a God-hater. He, he either denied there was a God, or he created his own little idol God. Romans 3.18 says, regarding the non-believer, there is no fear of God. That's so true. When you tell me I think God is, apart from Scripture, you have no fear of God. Even the believer, you should have a degree of trembling when, when we speak of who God is, that we might misrepresent him. The fool says there is no God, Psalm 14, 1 and 53, 1. But for every genuine Christian, it starts with a, a, a recognition of who God is and fear comes out. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, he comes before God. He's like, hey, dude, what's up? Right? No. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Right? Whenever the Lord appears to people, they get a little bit scared because God's a whole lot scary. This criminal somehow was given clarity that God was a threat. Do you know how he received that clarity? Watch this. Let it settle because it's not going to sit real easy. God so chose to reveal it to him. There was no intellectual discussion that took place where this man was intellectually bowed into submitting to some facts that God is a threat. No. The Lord so chose to give him eyes to, yeah, that's where, to see that he was who he said he was, and conviction of sin took place. That's a frightening thing. God had to be seen as a threat. Now here's what we do. We talked about this earlier, did we not? In our culture, there's this dangerous trend to woo people to Christ. Yeah? Let, let's make it fun. Let, let's make it exciting. Let's make lots of stuff going on, and they'll hang around, and they'll hear the gospel, and they'll accept the gospel. It don't work that way, my friends. You may help them think they're a Christian, but if you don't start with a fear of God, a trembling before him, you can't know God. And the only way to know that is for God to reveal it to you. Now, why did God choose to reveal it to this man? We'll get to that in a moment. But the majority of the answer is, I just don't know. He just so chose. Read Romans 9. This man started out with an understanding that God was a threat. See, here's the thing. As Christians, sometimes we refer to ourselves as being saved, right? What are you saved from? Do you ever think of that? What are you saved from? Well, actually, you're saved from God himself. Did you know that? 
God came to save us from himself. His wrath was upon us. He was going to destroy us. And he came to save us, not from ourselves, but from him. That puts it in a little different perspective. We go from facing the wrath of God to being a child of God. Now, now this is a 180 degree turn. You're an enemy of his, stand condemned before him. He's going to destroy you, but he loves you so much. Do you see this here? But it starts with an understanding, a fear of God. And the fear of God for a non-believer is very different than the fear of God for a believer. God is very unsettling for a lost person. That's why it is so upsetting when you watch people who don't know the Lord go through life because they have no fear of the one who is going to destroy them, but who doesn't desire to because he's made a way for all to be saved. Well, this criminal, for some reason, was given clarity that God made it all, God rules it all, and they were accountable to God. Listen, he hung on a cross because he broke the law of man, right? That makes sense. You do something bad that deserves death, the authorities of God put in place, execute that punishment. You know, you go to prisons and you don't often hear people saying, I don't deserve to be here. Listen, I just killed three people. I should be back in my house. No, they they know. They deserve it. Well, if this man was guilty of breaking man's law and faced death on a cross, he realized, oh my goodness, I've broken God's law. What do I face there? Ooh, God was a threat. He recognized his sin. Do you see that? How do people recognize sin? The Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You can't guilt a person into sin. Listen, the Holy Spirit will use his word to do it, but you can't make someone recognize their sin. Even for believers, don't we have a hard time seeing sin in our own lives? The lost are utterly incapable of doing that. The term spiritually dead describes all people apart from Christ. Do you know what death is? You ever think of how do you define death? Dead so when you die. I know. What does that mean, though? What's... What's death? It is an inability to respond to stimuli. Physical death, you are physically unable to respond to physical stimuli. If you don't believe me, go to a cemetery and kick a body. They don't care. Spiritual death, you are unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. You can't respond to God because you are dead. The Holy Spirit came to bring us back to life. Do you know why Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb? It wasn't just to show off. Hey, look what I can do. Hey, Lazarus. Woo, you're pretty cool, Jesus. No, he was showing us visually what he came to do, to call the dead to newness of life. But it starts with the Spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. This man somehow became fully aware that God was a threat and that he was a sinner before God. Do you see that? Now, if you're a Christian, you at some point in your life understood God was a threat and you stood condemned before him. How the man came to understand this, I'll show you in a minute, but something else happened. What does verse 41 say? Does I get my Bible back to the right place? It says in verse 41, And we indeed justly, right? We're standing here justly. For we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has what? Done nothing wrong. He doesn't say Jesus doesn't deserve to be on the cross. He says he's done nothing wrong. Do you see the difference there? He's saying he's perfect. People will tell me, well, I think Jesus came to be a good teacher. I think Jesus came to be an example. Well, I don't know how you're doing following his example. Jesus came to live the perfect life. God says what? You must be 
perfect. Jesus came to live what type of life? In your place. He didn't come to be an example. He came to save you from God. Do you see that? So we need to recognize God is a threat. We are sinful. Jesus is perfect. And you say, well, wait, wait a minute. This guy's yelling and reviling Jesus. They're mocking him. Save yourself if you got. And all of a sudden he's saying, this guy is perfect. Well, what happened? God worked. A miracle took place. This man went from death to life. Now, how? I don't know. I don't know how God worked doing this, but I do know it's a work that only God can do. Now, this boy was almost certain, this man was almost certainly brought up in a Jewish home based on where he lived. And Jewish kids are brought up being taught scripture. That's where I came up with that whole idea. And he would have had a head full of stuff, knowledge, biblical knowledge. And maybe, perhaps maybe, as he hung on that cross and looked at this guy who walked with him up to the cross, who went to be slaughtered without making a peep, who hung on the cross, and you'll see as we continue, whose bones were not broken, who was pierced, who took the sin of the world upon himself, who cried out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Maybe Psalm 22 came to mind, and the Holy Spirit used the word of God to quicken the man's mind and convict him of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he went, whoa, that's Messiah. Whoa, I I was just cursing him. Whoa, oh, I'm in big trouble. Oh, I lived my whole life hating God. What can I do? Do you see what's happening here? And what does he say to Jesus? Verse 42, he says, Remember me, right? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when people go on a cross during this time, they don't come down alive. Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Now, the disciples who spent three years with him, they weren't like, yeah, he's coming back, man. You can kill him, but he's not going to stay dead. God's not dead. They're singing that song, you know, way before it came out. They're all running and crying and hiding and freaking out, locked up in the upper room. Oh, they're going to come and get us. This guy's on the cross. The whole world's going crazy. The world's denying the truth. He has clarity and looks upon Christ, and he says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. You see, he knew the Old Testament scriptures in part, and you see it here. Because he knew Old Testament teaching was that Messiah would come and establish his kingdom on earth. So he assumed that something would happen. This, this, this Messiah must rise from the dead to return to establish his kingdom on earth. That's what the scriptures say. He would establish it. He had clarity. He believed the truth. And he cried out. And Jesus says to him the most crazy thing. He says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know when today ends? It's sundown. He's saying to this guy, today, before the sun sets, you will be with me in paradise. That's a synonym for heaven, in my kingdom. It's not some future event, he says to this criminal. He says, it's right now. He had a fear of God, a recognition of sin, an understanding of the righteousness of Christ, and he asked for forgiveness. Now, there is nothing that took place here other than the sovereign, miraculous work of God that brought this person to faith. The criminal didn't choose Jesus. Do you see that? Paul didn't choose Jesus. If you're a child of God, you didn't choose Jesus. He chose you. 
You are incapable of him. You were dead in your trespasses. Dead means unable to respond to stimulus. You were dead. But God chooses to save people primarily through his word. Not through moon bounces or wooing or clever techniques, but we actually must proclaim his truth, and the Spirit works through that. Now this man was in a unique position because he hung on a cross next to our Savior. We don't hang on a cross next to our Savior. We get to live on the other side of the tomb. Do you see the advantageous position we're in? But Luke 16, I think it's 1, or 16, tells us a story about evidence. You know, a lot of people, they'll say, well, if Jesus would just, would just show up, if he would talk to me. You know, when we were down at Disney, there was a sign in the sky. Do you, do you know it said, I think I sent you a picture. It said, Jesus, up in the sky. It was painted by an airplane, you know what I mean, up in the clouds. But people think, well, if God would show up, if Jesus would just come back, well, then I'd believe. You know the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Do you know that one? Not the Lazarus who was called out of the tomb, but the one who died and stayed dead. And he says here that there's a rich guy who goes to hell. Another guy who goes to, to the bosom of Abraham, to heaven. And the rich guy saying, I got brothers. Will you send someone back from the dead to tell my brothers, please? I'm in Luke 16 and I'm, I'm working my way through the 20s. Pick it up in 26, 27. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest also they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The criminal on the cross came to believe because God opened his eyes and he must have used his word that had been taught to him or preached to him or proclaimed to him. Now listen, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Who has the power to forgive sin? You know, that criminal sitting there going, wait a minute. There's a sign that hung over Jesus' head. You know what it said? King of the Jews. We have the scriptures that attest to Christ. This criminal had Christ himself on a cross attesting to himself. But what I want you to understand, guys, is this. And this is so important to how we live our lives. One is saved by a miraculous work of God. And why does that matter? It's not a matter of the human will or examination or intellect where you looked at all the evidence and you said, I choose this one. No. It's a matter of God saying, I choose this one. You see the difference? God said, I love you. I choose you. I love you. I choose you. Now you think, well, well, does God just go through the world and say, go to hell, go to hell, go to hell, come with me? Is that what it sounds like as you read scripture? Scripture says, whosoever would believe. So the question might not be, shouldn't be, well, well, what about those other, no, no. What about you? As a child of God, do you understand how incredible that God chose you? Do you understand how much God loves you? Do you understand that Jesus died for you? You didn't choose him. He chose you. And the only way you're able to know who he is is because God has opened your eyes to four things. That God was a threat, that you had sinned, that Jesus is righteous, and he offers forgiveness to all who will turn to him and be saved. Do you see that? 
And then we get to go out into the world as people who are forgiven by God and proclaim the same basic message. God is a threat. You have sinned. Christ is righteous and he desires to forgive you by turning to him and being saved, by trusting in him and believing. People will say a very, a very usual, normal question that every believer goes through at some point is, how do I know if I'm saved? Did you see God as a threat? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see Christ as righteous? Have you asked for forgiveness and turned to him and trusted in him? Then you are saved. Anything less than that is not a Christian. So how do we make someone believe this? You can't. You don't. That's not our job. Our job is to live as people who understand what we were. You know the difference between us and this criminal who hung on the cross? Nothing in God's eyes. We may not deserve death in a, in a man-made law execution structure, but before God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We had the same fate he did. Do you know the difference in position between this man on the cross and us? Now there's a little difference here. He only had a couple hours. He woke up dining with the devil and ended his day dining with the Lord. Do you know that? He breakfasted with the devil and had dinner with the Lord. You and I have been entrusted time by the Lord to live for his glory in this world. How much time? I don't know. Maybe five minutes? Maybe 50 years? I don't know. But this guy never had the opportunity to be baptized and bring glory to the Lord that way. He never had the ability to take communion with believers. He never had the ability to be committed to a local body. He never had the ability to proclaim the gospel to lost people. He never had a chance because God brought him home right then. Why hasn't God brought you home right now? He has work for you to do. He desires for you to walk in obedience, to proclaim his truth, understanding that he is God and you are not. He saves. Do you know what Jesus means? God saves. It's all in the name. It doesn't say, Pastor John saves. It doesn't say, Renee saves. It's God saves. We go and we tell people, Jesus, God saves. God owns you. God has requirements for you. And you fall way short. But God loves you so much that he sent his son to save you from him. Do you see this? And if God so chooses to open people's eyes to the truth, then they will be saved. And if people so choose to deny the truth, then they face an eternity separated from him. Too many people have never seen God as a threat. And because they've never seen him as a threat, they can never see the comfort that comes with being the child of a magnificently ferocious God. Do you see that? God is a consuming fire. He's frightening. He's scary. But we have the blood of Christ that protects us from him by his grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. All we had to offer the equation was sin. I think too often, though, we forget. We think, you know, somehow I kind of deserve this. I'm a good person and I have a skill set to offer God. And with my help, we can really grow the kingdom of God, Jesus. Peter had that mindset, didn't he? You know, listen, listen, if you're good at something, if God would just wise up and use it, I mean, he could go crazy with this, with this kingdom of God stuff, right? No, you have nothing.
to offer. And when you realize you have nothing to offer, then you start depending wholly on what God has to give. You can't really boast as a child of God. Listen, if God gives you excellent oratory skills, had nothing to do with you, it's entrusted for His glory. If you say something really smart and wise, it wasn't yours. It was his. If you have a physical ability that that people applaud, well, that's great. It ain't yours. It's on loan. If you're filthy rich and own everything in the world, well, you can chat with Solomon one day. You're not going to find happiness in it. But if God entrusted it to you, you can use it for his glory and find happiness in doing his will. But you have to back all the way up to understanding, I was nothing, but now I am a child of God by the grace of God. And God loves the world so much that he's calling the family home. You see, there are actual children of God out there right now who don't even know they're children of God because they haven't heard the gospel yet or the Spirit hasn't worked to open their eyes. And how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless we preach? And we got to get some pretty feet. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read Romans, okay? Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who go and proclaim the good news. Well, these physical feet aren't so pretty, but I'd like the spiritual version to look beautiful before the Lord. You can't boast when you understand how you got to where you are. You can't help but love a little bit when you understand how you got to where you are. You can't depend on yourself when you understand how you got to where you are. You will depend on God. You will live for His glory. Because that's all you can do and you see the joy that comes from it. So what's Easter really all about? Well, it starts with an understanding that God is scary. He's a consuming fire. And he loves us so much that his son chose to hang on that cross, to take the wrath of God in our place, so we sinful people might be forgiven. Now think about this, and I'll close here. This is an addendum. Who was at the bottom of the cross? Got a criminal up there, a wicked, nasty man. There's a a really wonderfully righteous woman down at the bottom of the cross. Remember Mary? The Lord's mother. She didn't kill people. She trusted in the Lord. She was a good lady, wasn't she? She, Can you imagine? She she held that little baby Jesus. She, She kissed his head and she fed him and cared for him. And the Lord entrusted to her the responsibility of being the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. She was a good lady. But do you know who Jesus was? It's her Savior. You see, there's no one who's so good they don't need a Savior. Mary would go to hell apart from Christ. Just like the criminal would go to hell apart from Christ. Jesus died because for Mary, her son became her savior. And for the criminal, the object of his reviling and ridicule became his savior too. Do you see that? It's not just quote-unquote bad people in the eyes of the world. It's all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So my friends, four things. If you've never recognized them before... Maybe today is the day the Lord opens your eyes fully to the truth. God is a threat. You are sinful. Jesus is righteous. And God forgives those who ask. Maybe you've been a child of God for a long, long time. I remind you anew. God was a threat. Jesus is righteous. You are a forgiven sinner because you have asked Jesus for forgiveness. Now we go out into the world for the rest of the week. And we live not like the people of this world, but like people who know that God is no longer a threat, but our Father, 
Jesus is no longer a strange man who hung on a cross. He is God incarnate who calls us his friend. And we live in the security and comfort of knowing that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things and he will use all things for his glory and our good. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Those were words originally communicated to Israel. But their implication and intent was to children of God through the covenant work of Christ. God says, fear not. My friends, guess what? When we see him as a threat and understand what it is to be forgiven, there is absolutely nothing to fear. Easter is about. There is no need to fear. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us more fully understand the reality of what took place upon that cross. I pray that you would help us understand the miraculous work that took place in the criminal whose name we don't know, but one day we will meet in paradise. And Lord, I pray you would help us understand that his story is our story. We were spiritually dead, but you gave us eternal life. We were unlovable, but you chose to love us. We were full of darkness, but light overcame the darkness. And Lord, as we live in this time of present grace, where you entrust to us how many days we do not know, but you do, I pray that you would allow us to see each day as you see it is created by you, sustained by you, and made by you so that you might be glorified. Help us live as sojourners, not as people who are living for this world, seeking to find joy in stuff, but as folks who are passing through, calling others to walk alongside us as we follow you, Good Shepherd, as we traverse this life, the bumpy path, the narrow path that at times can seem frightening, And we think of the words of of David that you spoke through him, Holy Spirit, that, that though he passes through much difficulties, that you make a way for him to lie down in green pastures, that you prepare food for him, that you bend his enemies down before him, and you lead him on through the valley of the shadow of death. As we live in this land of the valley of shadow of death, I pray you help us keep our eyes on the eternal kingdom, on the beautiful eternal city, where the tree of life is planted, where you will live with us forever, that you made a way for us on that cross. And Lord Jesus, when they went to look for you in the tomb, you were not there, and they were told, he is risen. I pray that we would live as people who understand the fullness of the fact that you are risen, that God, you are not a threat, but through Christ you have become a loving Father, so that we may approach you boldly and call you Abba. Help us live with confidence and boldness, understanding that our faith rests not in our work, but in the finished and complete work of our Lord and Savior. It is in His holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.